Welcome to At Home and Abroad with Harrison Walker. Join us each week as we explore the far reaches of the globe in search of unique characters and stories to share. Reach beyond your front door and let's chat about art, architecture, history, real estate, and more. Let's jump in. Winter getaways may suggest to some an escape to the heat-soaked white sand beaches of the Caribbean, but for many, a winter holiday embraces everything that this beautiful season offers. Midwinter holiday destinations conjure visions of the northern lights, the cozy blankets warmed by the fire, wood-fired hot tubs under starry skies, but expeditions into the cold often involve much more planning and consideration, particularly in this era of climate change. Explore with us the impact of climate change on our beloved wintry destinations and learn how we can all minimize our impact with bite-sized behavioral change. So let's chill out and get the cold hard facts on what it takes to be a winter wayfarer. Winter travel certainly has a lot to offer, but it also has its own, how shall I put it nicely, complexity. Yes. I personally dream of sun and surf when in the depths of winter here in Canada. But for some, like you, Harris, they have visions of off-piece skiing, snowshoe trails, and pond hockey in the winter months. Well, that's true. But don't forget about the après ski activities like hot tubbing or reading by the fire. I am a pro at après ski. Yeah, our winters can be so gray and bleak that when I have the opportunity to get away in the winter, I tend to be in search of solar therapy and vitamin D. Mm -hmm. I remember one time when I was in university, a friend of mine told me he was spending his Christmas vacation with his family skiing in Colorado. You know, it was a real head scratcher for me. I couldn't imagine going somewhere cold during the winter. Mm. It actually seemed like a huge waste of a vacation personally. (laughs) Clearly, I am not a big fan of winter. I am always physically cold. Harris, I'm cold just sitting here. I'm actually really cold sitting here (laughs) too, Walker. Not just you. (laughs) My family are skiers, so we love a ski holiday, but we would never turn down a trip to the beach either. Yeah, I am not a skier, but rather I would call myself a fleer. Oh, that's hilarious. You're not alone though, Harris. There are plenty of people who seek out snow-capped mountains, even if they aren't sporty. There certainly are. Winter is probably my favorite time of year if you can be outside in the natural environment. Right. So this is when you're going to tell me there's no bad weather, just bad clothing, right? Yes, that's actually right. (laughs) Because I do firmly believe that it's no bad weather, just bad clothing. But it goes beyond that too. This might not apply to you, but most of us adapt to the weather no matter how chilly. Ollie Jay, a professor in thermoregulatory physiology at the University of Sydney, told The Atlantic that people can adapt to the outside temperature if they are exposed to it for 10 days or more, explaining the reason why those last few four-degree March days feel so much warmer than the first four-degree days of November. I'm talking Celsius here for my American friends. He further points out that people who are exposed to cold temperatures more often tend to feel cold less. As you become more acclimated to the cold, your body becomes more effective at delivering warm blood to the extremities, your core temperature goes up, and all that contributes to being more resistant to the cold. So I'm getting the feeling you're suggesting that I need to go skiing more often to feel less cold. I think that is it, Walker. That's the answer. It might help. Cold immersion therapy. I'm not sure skiing is for me anymore, to be perfectly honest. I think if I fell down, I'm not 100% sure I would get back up. Mm. We don't really have to be skiers, though, do we, to enjoy snowy destinations? We definitely don't. There's always snowshoeing, simple trail walking, ice fishing, dog sledding, and some people enjoy winter camping. I may love to embrace the cold walker, but I'm not so sure about this whole winter camping thing. I'm not even sure about the summer camping thing, for that matter. So you're going to have to tell me, what's involved with the whole winter camping thing? Well, it's much more than just pitching a tent in the snow. There's actually different types of winter camping. The easiest to take part in is cold camping, which is cold. I was going to say snuggly. Yeah, doesn't (laughs) sound appealing at all. Hot tenting and Quincy, which is a form of snow shelter. With cold camping, it's just as it sounds. There's no heat source in your tent, so you need a four-season tent, which is able to stand up against strong winds and the weight of heavy snow. 
I would also imagine you would need some pretty intense sleeping bags and sleeping liners, which raise the temperature a few degrees and collect sweat and dirt and are easier to wash, and sleeping mats as well. Apparently, the weight of your body pressing on the sleeping bag on the ground will diminish the amount of insulation underneath you and therefore be colder. Hot tenting, on the other hand, requires a very special tent, probably non-flammable, and a wood stove, so it is therefore a pricier activity, but maybe a warmer activity. And then finally, there's the Quincy. And I actually made one of these in an outdoor winter school trip when I was a kid. Oh, you're a Quincy expert. I am not a Quincy (laughs) expert, but I thought it was super cool. A Quincy is a snow shelter made from a shaped loose pile of snow. The Quincy requires more effort because you need to build it, and that requires some skills. But this is not to be confused with the infamous igloo, of course, which is way more hardcore and involved. But if you don't like enclosed spaces, the Quincy may not be for you. It is very tight in there. Okay, so no room for my duvet, slippers, electric blanket, heating pad, hot water bottle, that sort of thing. No room at all there, Walker. Not even for like a little fire or wood stove. But no matter what route you settle on, it is suggested that you try this adventure with experienced campers because it is much more challenging than regular summer camping. The trick is also to stay dry and to not sweat too much. Hypothermia is a risk. One Canadian blog suggested experimenting in your own backyard first before branching out to a park. Slowly increase your skills because those risks are real. But if you live in Ontario, Canada, Frontenac Park actually offers workshops that you can take part in to gain some of those skills. Okay, so if camping in the cold isn't your thing, there's always ice hotels, right? Ever been? Mm, I've never stayed in one, though I did check out one close to Quebec City. Have you ever stayed in one? No, though I have gone to the ice bar in Las Vegas. How cool. (laughs) Nice pun. Yep, I thought you'd like that one. (laughs) So was the ice bar worth the visit? Yeah, you know what? It was interesting. You walk in, you get to choose your own faux fur coat to wear, hat, gloves, that sort of thing. Then you take a seat on a bench made of ice with ice tables and the bench is covered in faux fur blankets. Hmm. Then you can mosey up to the bar and they will make you a drink in an ice glass. So, you know, it's kind of fun. Um, It's a real novelty. That experience has piqued my interest in visiting an ice hotel now. Hmm. And there are quite a few around the world. Many are temporary because they exist in climates where it isn't conducive to maintaining them all year round. Yeah, I think you would have to be pretty far north to be able to keep an ice hotel open year round. So the one you visited must have been the Hotel de Glace in Quebec City. It's the only one of its kind in North America and is open from January through March. They have themed rooms with ensuite ice sculptures, hot tubs, and fireplaces. That sounds like fun. Mm-hmm. There's also the one located in Yukasarvi, Sweden, which is open from December through April. It is rebuilt in a new way every year. So once you go once, there is a good chance that it'll be completely different if you visit again. They also have dog sledding, which I know you've always wanted to do, Harris. Definitely. And apparently this hotel was so successful that it opened a permanent hotel called Ice Hotel 365, which, you know, you can stay at all year round, as the name suggests. It runs on completely renewable energy, which is cool and offers art suites, which they compare to sleeping within an art exhibition of carvings from selected artists from around the world. But if Finland is on your bucket list of places to visit, there is a snow village of Kitila, which is open January through April. The village offers two hectares of ice rooms and suites. There's an ice sculpture exhibition, an ice restaurant and bar, and lots of specialty cocktails and hot chocolate flowing too. I recommend you check out the article by Caitlin McInnes, seven of the world's coolest ice hotels for more options. Well, that sounds like a lot of fun and worth checking out. There seems to be a lot of artistic aspects or influences to these ice hotels. I think it would be really interesting to do too, particularly for those coming from warmer climates. Yes, I imagine. Snow and ice can be a pretty special thing when you experience it for the first time. I remember in grad school, I lived in a student residence and there were a couple of students from India living with me. And I remember they were so curious about snow. They even asked me whether it hurt when it snowed. Oh my God, that is so adorable and cute. I know, that's what I thought exactly. The first time it snowed, I remember seeing them out in the street at night under the streetlights watching with wonder as the snowflakes slowly fell from the sky. It was really beautiful. 
Yeah, my son had a similar experience with the international students in his first year. His university is in somewhat of a snow belt in Canada, and his friends could not believe it when that first snow arrived. I still find snow a bit magical myself, being a northern girl, I guess. Yeah, I do too, but I could definitely do without such a long winter season. Yeah. It's the length of the season yeah. that I actually find quite unbearable sometimes. That being said, though, we don't seem to see as much snowfall as we used to, are we? Yeah, snowfall does seem to be a bit less than what I remember in my youth. Let's not forget that climate change is a reality and will likely have an impact on all sorts of weather patterns, including snow. Climate change is affecting the way we travel, particularly for ski communities globally. Yes, the ski communities in the Swiss Alps have dominated the headlines lately, haven't they? Yeah, they have. But lack of snowfall isn't a problem limited to Europe. Decreased snowfall has been experienced in North America too. But you don't have to be a skier or snowboarder to feel the impact of climate change. In fact, there's an organization called POW, Protect Our Winters, which has chapters in 14 countries, including Canada. POW is a community of winter enthusiasts, elite athletes, and industry brands who are united in advocating for policy solutions to climate change. For example, Olympic ski cross gold medalist Ashley McIver is a champion of the cause and well-known brands too, such as Arcturix, Salomon, the North Face, and so many more you would recognize are also supporters of Protect Our Winters. There are resorts too, who are part of their network of advocates, and they're making a real difference globally. We are grateful today to be speaking to an advocate of POW and a leading expert in the field of climate change, Dr. Daniel Scott the University Chair in Climate and Society and the Executive Director of the Interdisciplinary Center on Climate Change at the University of Waterloo. We are excited to introduce Dr. Daniel Scott. Dr. Scott is a leading researcher in the field of global environmental change, climate and society, and sustainable tourism. Welcome, Professor Scott. Thank you so much for joining us today at At Home and Abroad. Thanks for having me. Wonderful to be here. Yeah, we're really glad you're here. Climate change is not often something that's super top of mind when people are planning their holidays, though perhaps it should be. Climate change impacts not only our future, but also our everyday lives. And the rate at which our climate warms is partially influenced by how, when, and where people choose to escape from the stressors of their daily lives. So why would you say we as global tourists need to to better consider climate change when planning our holidays, perhaps now more than than ever before. Yeah, you know, certainly over the, the last couple of years, climate change certainly hasn't been at the top of mind. For most travelers, we've we've just gone through a, a crazy era through COVID with with all kinds of restrictions. And, and in that recovery period, everybody's just worried, am I in my bag going to get to the place where I'm supposed to be? Um, has been at the top of mind for the last little while. But before, you know, COVID paid us a visit, you know, we saw movements like flight shaming more so in europe than say the north american market but that that remind us you know that, that there is certainly awareness and things are changing in that respect and that people are paying more attention to that i think most people now most canadians want to take action on climate change and they're in their everyday lives and they've figured out well how do i do that at home maybe at work um and holidays you know their travel patterns is something that they're adding to that and most struggle with how how do I go about doing that? And part of the problem there is the travel industry doesn't have carbon labeling. So when you go to buy a home, you go to buy a car, you go to buy an appliance, it tells you the energy efficiency. um, It tells you something about the carbon footprint of that choice. We don't have that in the travel industry. So that makes it difficult for people to actually understand the difference between holiday A and B. And there was a really good survey in the UK of asked homeowners or you know the citizens in the UK, you know, what are the top things you can do about climate change that you have personal control over? And, and they listed those things off and then they compared those against, well, what are the actions that would have the greatest impact on your footprint? And the biggest area of misunderstanding was related to travel. So mm-hmm. people were talking about getting out of their cars and biking to work and things like that. But one transatlantic flight for a Canadian, you know, somebody going Toronto, Heathrow or something like that, that can be as much carbon as they do, you know, that they use in their car in a given year, depending on how much they drive, what they drive. Um, And so, you know, you can't, 
not heat your home. You, you know, most people can't not drive and then switch to public transit. Some, some can, but you might be able to take one less flight a year and substitute that for a different kind of holiday or things like that. You know, travel can do amazing things, but the, some types of travel are certainly more compatible with a low carbon economy than other kinds right now. And people are just trying to get their heads around what those choices are. Yeah. And I think it's important to educate ourselves on how our travel and the modes of travel that we're taking on can have quite a serious impact on climate change and our footprint. Yep. This for me, I'm a skier. I'm not sure. Are you a skier? Yes, my, my wife's family is Austrian, so the, the skis oh, come with the, the passport, I think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They, yeah. But I am not of that quality. No, I, I get dragged along. Yeah, I also get dragged along. I learned <laughs> as an adult with my kids, so I'm I'm such a chicken on the slopes, but I still love it. And it was really shocking to me, you know, a couple of winters, I would say, there have been some headlines around the world of a real lack of base, snow base at very popular ski resort destinations. And I suspect it's not only a concern for ourselves as people who love to ski, but also for those communities that support or are almost fully supported by these local tourist industries. So I know you've done a lot of research in this area and published a lot of studies in this area. Can you explain a little bit to our listeners the impact that climate change is having on on winter tourism? Yeah. So that's a question I've been asked a a lot in in the media over the last probably five, maybe even going back further, um, number of years. And and some of them always looked at me a bit perplexed when I used to say to them, it hasn't had an impact on this industry. And and what I mean by that is from about 1980 through to about 2010, um, average ski seasons were actually getting longer and longer in every North American regional market. So from the East Coast to the West Coast. And the reason for that is the ski industry invested hundreds of millions of dollars in snowmaking. And so that was able, enabled them to, to lengthen the ski season and smooth out the bumps from year to year, particularly the early season around Christmas and things like that. So we were actually seeing average seasons getting longer, even though the climate was getting warmer. Hmm. That switched about 2010. So the last decade or so, we've seen that tip the other way. So average seasons are actually getting a little bit shorter. So we've We've probably passed the era of what you might call peak ski season. And same with snowmobiling in, in more rural areas. That's a big mm-hmm. part of their tourism. Um, mm-hmm. We're sort of past that that sort of peak of length of season, the ability to connect trails over, you know, over ice surfaces and things like that. So that's where we stand today. And, and as you said, we, we've, we're seeing more in the, in the southern Ontario area of these sort of green Christmases where even a place like Blue Mountain with tremendous snowmaking capacity can't get open and they've got to keep, you know, the ropes course and other things open for the kids to give them something to do around Christmas. And so that's that's what we're facing now. Of course, the the billion or, or trillion dollar question is, what are we looking at in the future? Um, and there we really have have two futures. If the world's able to achieve the Paris Climate Agreement, the, the targets for, for emission, lower emissions, and, and that is an if, but assuming that's what we're all working towards, then sort of by mid-century, so the next couple of decades, the ski industry, would you'd recognize it. There, there'd be a few players that fall out of the marketplace, but Southern Ontario would exist out of the market, um, Quebec and other places out west. Again, some places like California might struggle a little bit, as we've seen with snow droughts and, and, and some of the atmospheric rivers that they've had if they come as rain. So that's a low emission future. Looks not unlike what we've had the last sort of decade, a little bit worse. If we continue along the high emission trajectory, which is where we are now, then the entire geography of the ski industry begins to change. And so what you see in mid-century in, in eastern Canada, um, you see parts of the southern Ontario market fall out. Um, you'll see parts of New York struggle as well. Quebec is colder, further away from the Great Lakes and maritime and climate influence. High elevation Vermont and New Hampshire will be okay. So pieces of the market will be there. There'll be essentially, there'll be winners and losers. And understanding who those different destinations will be, as you said, for the communities is a big question because they're going to have, they're all going to have to adapt but for different reasons. If you're one of the winners, 
Um, like when we've asked, we've done surveys of skiers, like, well, if you couldn't ski here today, where would you go? And, you know, a whole bunch of them mentioned Blue Mountain or Mount St. Louis Moonstone. Well, people are going to go there. You've got to be able to handle that. So you can't just have more snowmaking. You have to have lift capacity, parking yeah. services, and all of those things that allow you to benefit from that transfer of demand and do better as a business. And so that's what each of the communities has to look at. How how are they going to adapt over the next couple of decades, depending on whether they're more climate resilient than maybe some of their market competitors? Mm-hmm. And tourists themselves will have to adapt because there will be more expense. But is there also a climate impact <clears throat> on in terms of people having to travel further afield to ski? Yeah, no, that's a really good point. So what that's what we've always typically found is as as you're local ski areas maybe some of them fall out of the out of the marketplace yeah people have to travel longer and and there is also a secondary concern that not just for recreational skiers like ourselves but we've heard that from olympians as well that you know if you can't if your kids don't learn to ski here at chicopee which is our local hill or glen eden near toronto would they have learned to ski well if you have to drive your kid to blue mountain for you know two hours or three hours driving how many wouldn't have learned to ski? So that's your pipeline to the next generation of skiers, but it's also your pipeline to the next generation of elite athletes. So if they don't learn to ski, do they take up hockey, gymnastics, whatever the thing is, and you never get them into the winter sports pool and then work our way up to the Olympics. Um, so that's that's a sort of twofold risk that, yes, there's there's additional travel costs potentially additional emissions. If, if more people fly to Whistler or Colorado to ski, the emission footprint um, of that tourism goes through the roof. And so the more we can keep people locally, and I've heard some people you know, complain about the emissions relating to snowmaking, and I say they're not understanding the system because in Quebec and here in Ontario, our electricity grid is pretty much decarbonized. Like it's, it's right. you know, hydro and, and, and nuclear or it's hydro in Quebec. So that snowmaking, if you double the amount of snowmaking, comes with a very little carbon footprint. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you can keep people in the region right. um, and if they take an electric car, you can pretty much have a net zero holiday now. The minute right. they get on an aircraft to fly to Colorado, to Aspen or to Whistler or Sunshine, um, the carbon footprint of that holiday is, is like 10, 20 fold what it would have been if you stayed home or in the region. Exactly. <clears throat> yeah. We want people to to buy into the Paris Agreement around the world and keep it as the status quo as much as we possibly for can. For sure. And, and and people have to understand, you know, snowmaking can be done sustainably. And so for the local ski industry, that's an important message that people need to understand. That if you do it well, you can do it quite sustainably. And it can be part of that, you know, net zero future um, tourism that we all want. Yeah, I hope that that's what we're seeing today and going forward in the winter sports industry, that they do want to buy into better snowmaking facilities and equipment. This kind of leads me into my next question, because I know co-authored research on the management of how the Olympic Games and hosts for the Olympic Games manage weather and helped these host destinations on an outlook on what their future might be in the era of climate change. So what do events like the Winter Olympics, what do those destination, host destinations have to consider when they're planning these events? Yeah, we we started our, our research on the Olympics sort of aiming at the big picture, which was to, to try to get the attention and, and influence the International Olympic Committee, the IOC. They're the custodians of the games. They sort of set the rules on who can bid and when you bid, what do you have to do when you bid? Um, and, and you know, is sustainability a big part of what your bid is, is climate change? And and we've been successful at that. You may have seen just before Christmas, they deferred their decision on who would host the 2030 Winter Games. And they, yeah. they cited they wanted to understand better understand climate change and referred to some Excellent. academic research, which was ours. And we had presented to their future host committee about two weeks before that, not knowing they were making any kind of decision like that. But we had a really good discussion. They asked lots of good questions, you know, technical questions and, and recommendations. And and from what we could see, you know, they were listening, um, which is great. And they were open to sort of doing doing the game slightly differently, which was actually a surprise to us, but but a very pleasant one. So that that was great. And and part of that is 
you know, including climate change in the bid process more comprehensively than it has been, both taking into account the, the type of climate that a, a location is, is likely to see, some of the thresholds that the athletes that we had talked to defined as sort of safe and fair conditions, um, and assessing the probability of getting those sorts of things. The sustainability of snowmaking is a key one. You know, we've talked about that every games has that going back to, I think, the, you know, the mid-1980s and Lake Placid, I think, was the first. So that's just a, a core part of the Winter Olympics now. And some of the things that individual hosts do differently is some of them that are more climate reliable now, but certainly will be less so going forward. Um, so a city like Munich might want to bid sooner rather than later because their window of opportunity to be a reliable host is probably going to, well, it will decline every decade going forward. So they may want to bid earlier rather than later. And then other ones like a Vancouver, hopefully they learn from their the 2010 games where you saw there was the part of the games, the skiing that was in North Vancouver, El Nino showed up at the wrong time, melted their snow. It was too warm to make snow. So they're putting hay bales down and helicoptering snow from other valleys and dumping it on top. Yeah. Um, you just wouldn't locate any part of the games in North Van. You would move all of your skiing and snow-based activities or competitions either to Whistler um, or Interior BC, where it's much more climate reliable. The snowmaking capacity is, is a, a non-issue. So you would adapt how your your snow sports venue, where where you would put it. And, and that we had discussed with the IOC a little bit is, they may have to consider more than one country as a host. So we've seen the next World Cup, for example, for, yes. for soccer, is Canada, U.S., Mexico, which mm -hmm. is awesome. You know, the Olympics has always been one country, one, one host city, right? Well, why not have a Rocky Mountains Games um, where, mm -hmm. say, Calgary and Denver, Calgary, Salt, Salt Lake City cooperate. They have cultural ties in the Rocky Mountains. But now you have a state, a province, and two federal governments to help pay the bill yeah. Um, economically, it makes more sense. You kind of spread out the activity a little bit. So the congestion, the disruption of the community is a little bit less. One hosts the opening ceremony, one hosts the closing ceremony. You both benefit from infrastructure for winter sports. Mm -hmm. You know, it's all good. It's um, a win-win. Well, I think so. It, it, yeah. it helps solve a few of their challenges related to, you know, communities don't want to pay the big bill. They're leery of the disruption. And the other part of this that we said really emphasized to them is they really have to figure out what to do with the Paralympics games, yes. part of the games, because yep. they're typically held in March. Winter Olympics is in February, which is the best climatically month to have the the snow sports in it. By March, you know, spring is starting to show show up in many places of the world. And we saw like the difference between the Vancouver Games and the Sochi Games. The the injury rate for Paralympians went up six times. Sixfold, um, because the conditions were just that much more marginal, um, and so you, you again, you've got the best in the world getting hurt doing some of this stuff. So either you have to put the Paralympics together with the Olympics in February, which makes the games even bigger, which then makes sense if you're helping to spread the load in, in say two two host cities or something like that. But that's the one they have to figure out sooner rather than later because I think that's going to be the vulnerability in the next two decades is what happens with the Paralympics. Yeah, it's more of a an immediate concern as opposed to yeah. something to think about in the future. So, Dr. Scott, would you be able to define for us the term sustainable tourism and maybe discuss strategies and actions that you've noted the tourist industry employing in response to climate change? I wish I could give you one definition for sustainable <laughs> tourism. I'll give you one that's probably one of the most widely used, used ones. Um, there is no consensus in that some people, certainly in the industry, focus on sustainability of tourism as an industry, as a sector. Others look at it in a slightly more broader lens and that they look at sustainable development for a destination or a community through tourism. And if tourism is part of the answer for sustainable development, great. If it's not, that's an acceptable answer as well. Whereas if you're focused purely on the question of sustaining tourism or making tourism as sustainable as possible, that's a slightly different question in, in the way you prioritize it. So there is always that sort of duality of how people look at the question. So, But the one definition that's used probably the most is the, so the United Nations World Tourism Organization, they have their definition. It's probably been in place about 10 years now 
that something like tourism takes full account of current and future. So that's important. So it's today and going forward, the economic, social and environmental impacts. So it's taking all three of those pieces. It's not just the economics. It's not purely environment. It's, you know, socially what happens in the community as well. And it takes those three pieces and it looks at, you know, for the visitors, for the host community, and, and for the industry, tourism industry as a whole. So it, it's taking the sector as a whole. It's taking all three dimensions of sustainability and it's looking both current and future. And so that's that's about as comprehensive as the definition as, as we can get. Again, when you put that into operation, it can still mean many different things to, to, depending on who you're talking to. And, you know, to your point, sustainability was definitely a, a more secondary theme at, at tourism conferences and, and in tourism policy up until about probably 10 years ago. And in the last five, I see the, a real shift, not just that becoming mainstream, but now it's a priority. And that's the sort of language you hear in UNWTO and in industry that they see that on par with the information technology revolution. They see the next 30 years in terms of sustainability as being just as big a change for tourism going forward. Mm-hmm. So are you seeing countries in particular that are leading this? Yeah, for sure. And, so, and some businesses too, like there are, there are absolutely leaders that, that they see their competitive advantage. And I don't want to sound like a commercial here, but the yeah. Travel Corporation is one that, that I know the work that they do and, and they have very broad offerings, but they take it to heart to figure out how to do some of these things, whether it's their cruise component, whether it's their flights, their hotels, their tours, they've done a real, and there are others, um, but that's just one. And then similarly to your point on, on countries, there are, are countries like New Zealand, which tourism is a major part of their economy, that are asking themselves some pretty serious questions about what place that industry is going to have in their economy of the future, particularly you know, in, a, in an era of climate change, where everybody's got to get there either by a pretty long flight, even the Aussies, or cruise. And they're asking them serious questions, like, do we want cruise ships? Do we want to even allow them in the country anymore, um, just because of the emissions that come with that? in the carbon footprint for the tourism. So they're looking at that. They're looking at how can they create a domestic market for sustainable aviation fuel so they could at least fuel their own fleets and people coming and going. Costa Rica is another country, I think, that's that's doing a really good job of looking at what is the place of tourism in their economy and how does it foster sustainable development in that country. So there are definitely leaders, the sort of scaling of that kind of leadership that We'd want to see for the entire sector to meet whether it's industry targets for the Paris Climate Agreement or those broader definitions of sustainability. That's that's what has to happen. Can't be an exceptional company here and there where you can highlight, well, they're doing great stuff. That has to become the norm. And yeah, it takes leadership to to get there and show people the pathway. But over time, that's that's what we hope we see over the next couple of decades. Okay. So uh, we talked about a little bit at the very beginning of uh, this discussion about us as tourists sharing the responsibility and care for the mm-hmm. environment. So I'm just wondering if you could share some strategies when they're planning their holidays, what should they be considering? How can we as tourists ease our impact on the acceleration of global warming? They're going to travel. Yep. So is there something, some rules of thumb that, where they can be making a difference? Yeah. You know, first and foremost, as we said, and then you both mentioned that, educate ourselves to the extent possible. Um, many people, they don't know where to start, right? Um, exactly. And, and that is a big, and, and that's why sometimes like I'll put up a, a company like the Travel Foundation. You know, if you book through them, they do the hard work, they do the homework, and you know you're in good hands. And so if you travel with them, and if you find a company like that, that, that sort of matches your values and is in your budget then part of my recommendation is stick with them. If you know they're doing good stuff and you're hearing you know, lots of recommendations, then they're do- they're doing the hard work for you. And anything you book through them is going to be as good as it gets. So that's one strategy. At the end of the day, it's it's not about giving up travel. You know, it's about traveling differently, traveling smarter, traveling with future generations in mind so that you can consider things like your carbon footprint and say, well, okay, we're going to take a, a Christmas, New Year, family holiday. If we go skiing at Tremblant or, or Blue Mountain or something like that, and we happen to have an electric vehicle, like I said, you're pretty much going to have a net zero holiday now. 
which is amazing. You know, if if you get on a long haul flight and you take a cruise around the Caribbean or something like that, carbon footprints can be 10, 20 fold what it would have been had you, you know, stayed and done skiing instead. Or rather than traveling, you know, halfway around the world, um, you know, you go on a Caribbean holiday times four people and you've cut your carbon footprint from your flight in half in each case, still bringing the carbon footprint down. So all of those things contribute to decision-making. And, you know, if people, if New Zealand's on your bucket list, well, go there once, stay there for, you know, six weeks, four weeks, whatever you can, see the entire country, and that's it. You don't go back in two years. You don't go back every second, third year. Like So there are there are changes like that that you can make. And some of the things that people really want, and, and you know, they have to fly. And, and I like we talk to a lot of elite athletes, and that's just part of, if you're going to be an elite athlete, you have to travel around the world. Some of us, it's for business, you have to travel around the world. So you can you can use offsets um, strategically, and, and if they're good quality. So again, another company that does awesome work is called Atmosphere, a German company. They don't invest in forest-based offsets because those you're probably seeing in the media yourselves. The reputation of those is certainly questionable um, and getting more questionable. Sometimes they burn down and, you know, when you've got a drought. So they invest in other things, whether it's solar panels, cook stoves in Africa, a lot of different things. And so the emission reductions happen in another part of the global economy. Um, and the atmosphere doesn't care where that reduction came as long as that reduction came. And so, again, if you if you look into and you find a good company like that, you know, they're doing it at a gold standard in terms of offsets and and they're doing the hard work because they're figuring all those things out for you and you're just besting and when working with a, a really credible company so those are the different ways um again you can put your put your hands in somebody else's care um and know that it's being done as best as possible or if you've got the time and the inclination you can do a bit more of your own homework to make sure that and you can ask questions you know of, of a resort you know what do they do with the local economy what do they do in terms of energy efficiency? What are they doing on plastics? You know, and you get your own answers that way as well. And, and just one more last thing here. What do you say to people who think maybe their vacation plans don't really make a difference? Yeah, I mean... But I'm just one person, you know what I mean? Like, Oh, absolutely. And, 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 and people will sort of have that same mindset sometimes, you know, what what they drive and things like that and 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 we all have to make decisions that that are consistent with our values and and what we want the world to look like for our kids or grandkids but on on the travel side there is often genuinely a lack of awareness of how much emissions come from flying 15 years ago maybe even 20 now um, when I first started teaching our our larger climate change classes I wanted to show my students like I said this is our I use the carbon footprint for my my family at home. Here's our home. Here's our driving habits. Here's our eating habits and all of those sorts of things. And here's my work-related travel. My work-related travel emissions were higher than, than everything that we did as a family. And so the number one activity that I could do to reduce my emissions wasn't putting solar panels on the house. It wasn't driving an electric vehicle or a hybrid at the time. It was trying to fly less. And so for 20 years, I've... I've made the conscious decision to very, be very careful with where I, you know, expend my my flying carbon, and I try to keep more of it for my family and and use less of it for business travel. And then, like I said, you can offset some of that. So, part of that comes with the awareness, and and that goes back to the discussion we had at the beginning. Without that carbon labeling, and Google started to do that for flights. You may have seen that, and I hope that catches on and becomes a standard because that's how people will understand this holiday package versus that holiday package. Just how much of a difference does that make? And and they'll they'll start to see how much bedded carbon there is in different choices. And then I think most people will act responsibly and accordingly. They just don't have the information yet. Right, right. It, it reminds me of how many decades ago people never looked at labels on food. Yeah, right. Yeah. And yeah, now the, yeah. over time, everybody's become slightly more educated or it has become that way over the years. And now it's becoming, you know, very common. Yeah. Most yeah. people do do that before they make a purchase. Yeah. Like the, the markets can't be responsible if the information's not there. Like yeah. if you just don't know and you and you, and you don't have that ready made you know, information at your fingertips when you're making that decision, it's much harder to make the proper decision. 
Thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us today, Dr. Scott. You've given us quite a bit to think about prior to embarking on our next adventure. If you would like to learn more about climate change and sustainable tourism, we have included a few relevant links and references to Dr. Scott's work in our show notes. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. That is a lot to take in. We truly can each make a difference if we are mindful about the long-reaching impacts of our behaviors today. So where would you travel to, Walker, if you wanted to minimize your carbon footprint in the wintertime? Well, that's a pretty easy question. We're more of a weekend travel sort of family. We're quite accustomed to taking mini breaks nearby. As a family, we often cross the border and head over to Michigan. There are a lot of lovely hotels to stay at and restaurants to visit as well. We might take in a basketball game, visit some museums, and maybe even go shopping. You know, if we're staying in Ontario, we love the local country inns like Langdon Hall, for instance, where we can walk the country trails, go to the spa, and enjoy some fine dining. Going to locations like Niagara Falls as well can be fun, but you really don't even have to leave Toronto. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, you know, if we felt we needed a break, we'd just head downtown, maybe to the Four Seasons or another hotel. The kids, when they were young, they would play in the pool all day long, and I didn't have to make dinner or breakfast or even make the beds for that matter. It was a real break for me. Yeah, it sounds perfect. I remember my parents doing that too every year. They would just take off for a weekend alone, just go to a hotel downtown, And of course, there's no shortage of gorgeous hotels in Toronto. There truly are, too, some of the most beautiful, lovely local destinations just beyond city limits. We often forget to look locally for a little winter break, whether we're skiing at a nearby resort or, as you said, spending some R&R at a local country inn. Local road trips are so much fun. And of course, you're supporting your local economy as well as reducing your carbon footprint by just staying a little closer to home. Exactly. And perhaps one of the most troublesome things about long-distance travel during the winter is the uncertainty involved with flights, right? Yeah, I completely agree. A big storm can totally upend any travel plans, and it often does in the wintertime. Yeah, for this reason, I always tend to book direct flights if possible. It cuts down the odds of something going seriously wrong. Yeah, good idea. You don't have to worry about missing your connection if your first flight is delayed by bad weather. Flying in the morning can also be advantageous too. If you're scheduled to leave late in the day, there's a risk that the next available flight won't be until the next day. Mm -hmm. I remember one trip when this came into play, we were traveling to the Caribbean with the kids and a huge storm was just hitting Toronto as we were heading out to the airport. I think it was like four o'clock in the morning. The highways were absolute madness, but we still managed to fly out that day because we were one of the first flights. But people on later flights that morning they were not so lucky. Missing that flight would have resulted in some cranky kids, very disappointed parents, holiday time wasted, and a lot of aggravation. So if you know bad weather might impact your flight, check your flight status before leaving for the airport. Most airlines now offer up-to-the-minute status alerts by text to your phone, so make sure your phone is handy and keep it charged. Did you know, Walker, that there are also days which travel experts suggest trying to avoid if possible? Apparently, Christmas, New Year's Eve, and the day before Thanksgiving are all crazy travel days. Have you ever flown on those days, Walker? Uh, I've tried to avoid them. I haven't flown out on New Year's Day or Christmas Day. I have flown to New York City a couple times on Boxing Day. One time in particular, you know, it, it was one of those vacation experiences when many flights had been canceled that morning because of the snow. We were at the airport waiting to see if our flights would be canceled as well. The kids were little, so there was a lot riding on this. We didn't have any plans for another vacation, probably for another six months or a year. Mm-hmm. But luckily, it wasn't canceled. We were one of the lucky ones. So it's definitely something that can cause a lot of anxiety at the very last minute. It does cause a lot of anxiety. I think it's best to just build in some extra room into your travel schedule so if things do veer off track you have more wiggle room to still get to where you want to go and it does help that pre-travel anxiety when flying to hong kong once our connection in newark was just one hour our travel agency was adamant that we would make the connection even with our small young children but of course our first flight was delayed by 45 minutes Oh my gosh, you were right. Yeah, (laughs) I was right. right. Of course I was right. So when we landed, we hustled, man. And I mean 
hustled. I ended up running with three 40 to 50 pound backpacks ahead of the family just to get to the gate and hold the plane, which was on its final boarding call. But of course, we had 15 hours then to catch our breath on the flight to Asia. So it did end up okay. Okay, so that's absolutely nuts. I know. That, that sounds like a scene out of a movie. The scene that's supposed to cause anxiety for the viewer. Yeah, right? it like was it's, stressful. It's what you don't want to happen. So what do you think about travel insurance? I have to say, we never buy it. But I'm always nervous. Now, ultimately, you know, to this point, I've been lucky. Things have worked out. But I have to say, it does happen where I think to myself, oh gosh, I should have done it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we never buy cancellation insurance either. Health insurance, yes. Yes. Cancellation insurance, no. Often you can change your flights nowadays free of charge or with a minimal fee, but just be mindful that if you have a number of travelers like we do, a family of five, that minimal fee does add up quite quickly, but we have always taken our chances. All of this bad weather talk is not convincing me to take a long distance winter trip, though I must be in the minority. Even the Lonely Planet highlights for its readers the coldest places on earth to take a vacation. That just does not sound right to me. No, it's not right for you, for sure, Walker. (laughs) But it is right for like my youngest kid, for example. Remember, we just took a hiking trip in Ireland in December. Yeah, right. Would he like this, though? Yakutsk, Russia, which is 3,100 miles east of Moscow, is supposedly the world's coldest city and stands on stilts because shifting permafrost collapses buildings. Wow. Just this January, they were hit with some even colder than usual weather, where the temperature dropped to minus 51 degrees Celsius, minus 59.8 Fahrenheit. That is too chilly even for me. The temperature drops below minus 40 regularly. Can you imagine? No. It's interesting. The locals claim that you don't really feel the cold in the city, or maybe it's just the brain prepares you for it and tells you everything is normal. Locals claim that you should just dress warmly in layers like a cabbage. Oh, like a cabbage. I love that. I also dress like a cabbage, but more for menopausal reasons, I think, than subarctic <laughs> temperatures. Right. If you want a little bit more action, you can visit Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia, which is known as the world's coldest capital. It's a proper city and is Mongolia's cultural, political, economic, and social hub. And then, of course, there is the South Pole in Antarctica, where the windshield can take the temperature to minus 110 degrees Celsius. Now that's cold. That's insanely (laughs) cold. It was minus 45 at the cottage a couple of weekends ago, and I thought that was the absolute limit for me. But twice that, I don't even know if you can dress well for that weather. Yeah, I'm not sure the cabbage approach would work there either. No. In 2013, though, there was an expedition to Antarctica that set out to be the first team ever to cross the Antarctic landmass during the polar winter. It was known as the coldest journey. Hmm. Now, this wasn't just a world record that they were trying to set. Their aim was to raise $10 million to help eradicate avoidable blindness in developing countries. A secondary intention was to gather climate change data. Wow, that's amazing. I love the charitable angle to that expedition. Were they successful? I believe they raised 2.5 million, but they came across a crevasse field, which shortened their journey. Hmm. Those people must be chionophiles, which comes from chion, the Greek word for cold. What are chionophiles, Walker? Well, people who love the cold. Oh, I guess that makes sense. (laughs) I know, right? I actually came across an article which outlined nine things people who love cold weather understand. Okay, I'm curious about this because I count myself as one of those people. Okay, well, I'm not sure you'll identify with the first point this article makes. Apparently, the cold weather loving people like the fact that boob back and butt sweating is much less... (laughs) Less likely to occur in cold weather. I know. Oh my gosh. That is just weird and totally gross. I know. It struck me the same way. This article also claims that people who love cold weather believe that sweater weather is the most magical time of the year. Now, I have to agree with this point. Autumn is just glorious. I wish we could have autumn all year round, but we really don't need full-blown winter to enjoy sweater weather, do we? Absolutely not. And just for the record, it's sweater and boot weather because the two go hand in hand in my opinion I also love that time of year but I think you're right I think sweater weather and parka weather 
are two totally different things. Yeah, people who love the cold also seem to detest the humidity, which tends to accompany the warmer months. It really is not a friend to hair and makeup, is it? Definitely not. Yeah, apparently people also believe that cold weather creates coziness and more opportunity to cuddle. Mm. Makes me think of our curating cozy episode. Yeah, oh, I love doing that episode. I also love coziness. I think I actually sleep better in the cold. You can pile on all the blankets and get warm. But if you're already hot, you can't really take anything off to get cooler. Air conditioning is just a must these days. Yeah, so true. Heat waves are becoming commonplace these days all over the world. There's climate change again. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, speaking of those people who love the cold, do you follow the Iceman? I have seen him speak online. I'm no expert, though, to what he does. But he does seem to be extremely popular, isn't he? Yeah, he's super popular. I've read his book, The Wim Hof Method, and even followed his program, though somewhat loosely, for some time. Wim Hof, or the Iceman, is a Dutch adventurer who pioneered a method for withstanding extreme cold conditions. You can attend his workshops globally, and these often involve cold immersion exercises like ice water plunges, among other things. He says he can control the body through just the power of the mind. It involves techniques for breathing and meditation, some exercise, and it has proven to have had a variety of health benefits. Well, that's pretty interesting. It's super interesting. He's also completed a host of really dangerous feats, including climbing the world's highest mountains and taking part in an Arctic marathon. And Walker, he often does things things in shorts. No pants. No pants. He has shorts on, though. He, yeah. Well, yeah, he's got the shorts short, on. Short. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't short know pants. if they're short shorts. <laughs> Scientists from Wayne State University claim that he has found a way to trick the brain into believing it's in a stress situation, and the person feels euphoric and not cold, making you somewhat resistant to frostbite. Okay, so this begs the question, would you take part in one of these workshops, Harris? I probably would, Walker. I have jumped in the lake at the cottage in November, and I have to say you feel pretty invigorated afterward, and that's coming from a cold water chicken over here. There is a lot of science behind it. So would you be ready to take the plunge, Walker? No. I think I'm going to stick with my icy drink while enjoying a nice thermal bath. Thanks okay, for asking, that sounds though. good, too. Well, you know I'm always looking out for you, Walker. <laughs> you certainly are. To travel in midwinter through sleet, snow, and ice can not only test the limits of our own resilience and stamina, but it can also be an exercise in logistics and planning. Beyond ourselves and our own safety and comfort, we now need to consider the health and future viability of our home, the Earth and be mindful of our behavior today as it will have an impact on the winters of tomorrow. Perhaps in the words of Oscar Wilde, wisdom comes with winters. And so, embrace the winter, travel, immerse yourself in the lessons this stark, snowy season may teach us. Thank you for joining us at At Home and Abroad with your hosts, Harrison Walker. Follow us each week as we continue the conversation. 